Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. The Healy Driscoll administration has created a new office to focus on rural affairs in Massachusetts, and the newly appointed director, Ann Gobi, will join us to talk about how she plans to prioritize our needs in Western Mass on Beacon Hill. Plus, I'll take you to Jacob's Pillow in Beckett. We'll talk with Axis Dance Company's artistic director, Nadia Adame, about building equity and movement for all bodies of all types. And they do mean all. But first... This is the part of the work that I do with you, Monty, that I love the most. <laughs> yeah, this is the toughest part for sure. Forget about going through Grow Food Northampton while their f- fields are all flooded last week. I just need to take a little breather. Time for another Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CESA, the Local Hero folks. These last couple weeks and really months have been tough times for farmers and we've been talking about it plenty. But sometimes you just need to relax and take a break. And one way that people love to do that is with ice cream. And we're speaking with Avola Burnt from Grand Val Scoop and Granville, Massachusetts. I wish your name was Val. And then we, you'd be like the Grand <laughs> Val. you know, right? Yeah, the Grand <laughs> Valerie of all Valley. But what does Grand Val stand for as a farm name? Grand hyphen Val. It stands for Granville Valley Farm. Mm-hmm. And how it started was my grandfather who started a dairy farm. Was his name Val? Because that would be no. cool. Oh, dang it. <laughs> Francis, but <laughs> he um, bottled milk and peddled milk. Literally delivered mid- Lit- milk yep. by pedaled bike? Old Model T. Wow. Type of thing, Model A or C or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and he was Green Valley Farm. We started showing cows and raising dairy cows when I was a kid. And when we read to register them, Green Valley Farm was already a trademarked registration so we shortened Granville Valley to be Grand Val. And Khalees, who can't join us for the moment, um, has asked this question of many folks who have worked with dairy farms in the past. There was a time where the, the cows had to go away. Tell us your sad parting of ways with your dairy cows. Because <laughs> well, it always feels like a sad and yeah. heartbreaking tale. I've al- we've always had cows. My grandfather, like I said, bottled milk. Then he kind of got out of that. And we had a hobby farm at that point where we raised and showed show cows, and we milked by hand and a small amount of cows. Then in 1981, we built a decided we would build a dairy barn. We only milked 30, but that was enough. My mother had a great love for the cows and dairy cows, and we started the scoop, scooping, making and scooping ice cream in 1991 to kind of diversify. With only milking 30 cows, it's not really a profitable Dairy farm, dairy farms now really have to be hundreds of cows right. <laughs> to make any profit. We did it because my mother and we loved the cows and everything. We did that until 2004 when my mom passed away. We decided to keep going on the ice cream and promoting the dairy product versus actually having the dairy cows. Um, so we sold the dairy cows at that point in time. But you still have some beef cattle. Right. To keep the pastures down. Otherwise, pastures grow up, as you guys know, from other farms. If you don't take care of them, they just grow to wild. We did start raising beef cows to do our own grass-fed, pasture-raised beef. They're out in the pasture, free range, and we then sell the beef in the shop. Speaking with Avola Burnt from Granville Scoop and Granville Farm in Granville, Massachusetts, and Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero folks. You're like this wonderful showcase window into agriculture is the way I think about it. You have amazing ice cream that uses local ingredients for flavors, and then you have animals that kids and families can come, can touch, and get to know a little, and then you have the beef cattle. So how have you set up the farm business to welcome people? 
people in. Like you said, we have the animals. We have sheep and goats, and they can actually come up and feed them and pet them and get to know animals are animals and what we can use them for. People ask us questions. We're there to answer questions. We do do some school tours, which is great because it brings in the kids. And then we also give them a tour of how we make the ice cream because we make the ice cream right at the scoop. A lot of them are their first time seeing you ask them, you know, where does the milk, as we're making the ice cream, you know, where does the milk come from? And I try to go through and tell them that it starts at the farm and how they take it to the plants and make it into different dairy products that all started with a farm. So. You know, it just seems so needed, the, the kind of farm that you run, because I think as we get further away from the generations who owned and worked at farms, the amount of connection we have can erode and disappear. And that's, so that's the work of CISA, that's the work of your farm, is how do we keep people understanding food doesn't just appear in a grocery store. Somebody has worked with animals to make that possible. And you're one of the people that was working with the milk for the animals, but now you're just you're using you're sourcing the milk from elsewhere, but you're making the ice cream still. Tell us a little bit about your process. Yep. In the summer, we average about making about between two and four hundred gallons of ice cream a week. That's about how much I eat um, a week. <laughs> <laughs> and we have thirty-two flavors at all times that we're scooping. That's and... a, that's like the magic number of flavors, isn't it? And that's what Baskin Robbins was going to be. <laughs> I think it's the number of dips in the dipping chest. To be honest with you, because <laughs> we make over two hundred flavors. Just but only variety, 32. But only 32 at one time. That's funny. And so Baskin <laughs> Robbins probably was the manufacturer or like a huge purchaser of these. And that's why they had 32. It's just like, you know how I learned this from David Byrne's book, How Music Works. The reason that a record is as long as it is is because they wanted Beethoven's like Moonlight Sonata to be able to fit without being interrupted <laughs> on one side. And then they were like, OK, this is now yes. the standard size of a 33 and a third vinyl record. I think it was a mathematician who wanted to do two to the fifth. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and w when we make the ice cream, we use local products when we can. For instance, the maple walnut or maple cream, we use um, Maple Corner Farms. Where we in, went to um, go visit on maple, uh, the beginning of the maple season yeah. back yeah. in March. So we use their syrup. We also sell their syrup in the shop. We also use, like from Granville has a big wild blueberry crop. You know, there's two farms in Granville that have wild blueberries, so we make our blueberry ice cream in season. Mm. Um, we normally do peach ice cream from peach farms in Granville. But not I this year. I don't think year. this year we're going to have too much luck from what I've heard. Yeah. But um, we will start that again. And this year we did save some blueberries frozen from last year, So because I've heard that they're going to be scarce for the wild blueberries as well. Yeah, I the, think the cultivated are fine, but we use the wild. The wild blueberries that are in Heath also yes. suffered some major damage with the frost. So this has been, like we keep saying, we're trying to remain positive and support our local farmers if agriculture is something that you believe in in our area. Right. But it has been an unbelievable year already. And Avola so. Burnt from... Grand Val Scoop in Granville. You're furiously pointing at the ice cream. I want to taste some, and I love eating ice cream on the air. <laughs> Me too. All right, let's do it. All right, we brought maple walnut made with the Granville maple syrup and blueberry made from the Granville wild blueberries for you to try. Oh, yes. You know, and people who make ice cream are so professional when they bring the ice cream to you because they know it has to stay cold because if it doesn't, you're going to get ice crystals that form. What's your, like, milk fat content ratio thing? That's what I'm always hearing about people like, oh, this is the, bu the butter fat or the milk fat in this particular ice cream shops is so good. We do make a gourmet ice cream. It is a 16% mix, butter fat mix. So it's very rich. Love it. Wow, I kept that pretty cold on the way here. Yeah, right. <laughs> I didn't think I'd do such a good job. Okay, well, should we start with the, the maple walnut first? Yeah. You know, the terroir on this... <laughs> 
<laughs> You're making fun of me, Bill. I love it. I, I do too. Not too sweet. No. Very mapley. Mm-hmm. And the walnut mm-hmm. gives it that nice texture. Absolutely mm. delicious. Wow. The maple is just out there letting you know it's local and yummy. Yummy indeed. Okay, so now here's the blueberry made with the, the local wild Granville blueberries. I think I should have had the blueberry first. I think so too. Yeah. We were wrong. We, we should have wrong. had the blueberry over You should have told us. You know what that means? <laughs> we got to go back for more. More blueberry. <laughs> That's the only right way. It wouldn't give it its just desserts. All right. What I love about the blueberry is that the sweetness does not overwhelm the blueberry flavor. And it doesn't taste like blueberry flavor. No. No. It tastes you... like blueberries. Mm. Are you the ice cream maker? Yes. My dad and I. Um, I, I keep my dad busy. He's still... Um, does our deliveries when we have to go somewhere, and uh-huh. he still plugs along making the ice cream. You don't um, make him pedal around in a, a Model T, though. <laughs> no, <you're> like, no, no. <laughs> you got him so, a better car. <laughs> <laughs> yep, what's his so. favorite flavor to make, and what's your favorite flavor to make? Well, my dad's a purist. He always goes for vanilla. <laughs> Every ice cream maker that I've talked yes. to says that's the that's like the gold standard of yep. being able to tell how good an ice cream maker is by yep. their vanilla. Yeah. And what about vanilla. you? I like a chocolate. Anything with the chocolates and stuff like that. A bowl of burnt from Grand Val Scoop. Have you thought about doing a burnt sugar and butter or a flavor like that? I know that's a popular one at Harold's <laughs> in Northampton. Yeah, we haven't done that one yet. You could change the spelling of it to honor your last that's name. That's right. I could. You've also, you know, you've been involved with this farm and this location for generations now. What have you observed in the way that people are responding to the agricultural community? Are they, are they more supportive now than you remember growing up? Are they less supportive? I think they're more. I mean, COVID hurt everyone, but I think it really helped people to realize that little businesses and um, communities and farms and stuff are important. So we, I think we saw an uptick after that of people coming out and supporting the farms and stuff like that. And they've stayed supporting? Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be. I find people do come in and buy other products besides the ice cream, which helps other farms in the area. So changing the world one scoop at a time. Yeah. <laughs> a vola so. burnt from Grand Val Scoop in Granville, Massachusetts, and Phil Corman from CESA, the local hero. Folks, you can find out about all of our local hero farmers and ice cream makers. Their emergency fund is now once again open for the farms that were affected by the floods. If you are a farmer and you want a no-interest loan, you can apply by going to their website, buylocalfood.org. A reminder that CESA is an underwriter of NEPM. More agriculture talk on the way with the new director of rural development, Adam Gobi. Up next, a dance company that makes movement for everybody's body takes stage at Jacob's Pillow and Beckett. We speak about making more equitable art with Nadia Adame, artistic director of Axis Dance Company, whose company and core motto purposefully includes folks of all abilities, neurodivergences, and disabilities. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. I'm here with Nadia Dame of Axis Dance Company who are at Jacob's Pillow performing. They are a all abilities, all divergences company. It's alarming that I have to say that that's novel because it shouldn't be novel. 
but it is like such a cool thing. How did you come to be involved in the company? I actually danced for the company in the early 2000s, 2000 to 2003, because it was the only place that would take a disabled artist like me. After finishing university, I used to dance in Spain. I studied at the Royal Conservatory of Dance and Theater in Madrid for seven years until I had a car accident. I got a spinal cord injury, so partial paralysis from the waist down. At that time, nobody thought that a disabled person could do dance. Like, hello, what? <laughs> so Judy Smith, who was the artistic director at the time, I sent her a letter. I sent a letter to 20 companies, only she responded. She said, oh, come over and let's do a little play in the studio. And that's how it happened. So I've been involved with the company through the years, starting at that time. And then I've choreographed for the company. I've taught for the company. And at the end of 2021, I became the artistic director, which is the full circle of the wheel coming back and rolling forward. <laughs> the arts are always about conversation and the medium in which you have conversation. So dance is conversation done with the body. For your company, there are so many extra parts of the body that you get to work with. What changes in your choreography or the way that that conversation happens when you have people of different abilities with wheelchairs, with canes, with other aids, different comfort levels. Mm. I welcome those extras as possibilities. And I think that is important. It doesn't limit us. It gives us more possibilities and different possibilities than what a regular or traditional dance body gives you. There are things that I do with my cane, for instance, that the non-disabled dancers are like, okay, Nadia, I can't do that. <laughs> and, and the same thing with dancers who use wheelchairs is the same thing. They can do things that I can't do and the other dancers can't do. So it's unique. We celebrate that uniqueness and we celebrate that diversity. Also, we just finished our Coriolat program and we had a fellow who was blind and we learn a lot from him because I'm not blind, so I don't know what he goes through. And so he taught us about putting things on the floor and how he feels moving through the space and how he controls that. And that gives him more freedom to move as a dancer and as a performer. All of these things, I think they are, there are immense possibilities out there. Yeah. Is that a thing that other choreographers that you commission to do work for your company encounter too? I think they do. I think a lot of the times, at least with the choreographers I've worked with, they're a little bit afraid. I remember working with Steven Petronio when I was in the company and he came in, he's like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. On one side, he had an injury, a foot injury, so he had to be sitting down to choreograph. So that gave him another way of thinking, okay, how am I going to approach these? And I think some choreographers are very good about coming and receiving what they're getting in the studio and receiving each dancer as they are and taking what they learn also from all of us into their future works. Or the choreographers, they come, they want to do what they do and they want to go and that's okay. it. And you know, it's fine either way. I think it's also great for us to learn the different ways of choreographers, how they work. But yeah, there's a mixture of things, yeah, and a mixture of emotions and a mixture of learning, yeah. <laughs> I was watching the short documentary on Access, mm. and one of the things that I noticed was a lot of contact improv. Mm. Is that 
one of the the main pillars of how you build work or have the company work with each other? I think it's one of the main pillars that we use, especially for non-dancers. And is one of the pillars we use to get to know each other's body. Because different bodies work differently. When we do improv, we get to sense what they feel comfortable with. We get to sense what they can take and what they cannot take, both in the disabled and non-disabled and neurodiverse dancers too. So it is a big pillar, but it's not the only one. We do other techniques. We take ballet class at Berkeley Ballet Theater with our company Post. We do Gaga, you know, <laughs> our rehearsal director right now. She's doing Horton technique with the dancers. So we take a lot of techniques to grow because we don't want to be one specific thing. So Jacob's Pillow also, through the course of the festival, offers classes just in general. They're open to the public. You can get tickets to go and participate in them. Have your company been, I mean, they've been in rehearsals basically the whole time, but have they had a chance to go to any of these classes? Have they had trouble accessing the contents of these classes here? We haven't gone to them. I have to say that for us, for me and for other disabled dancers, sometimes we feel afraid to go into classes where we don't know if the teacher is prepared to teach us. Throughout many years, we've been going to classes where we get pushed to the corner or we are not given body translation to the movement or, you know, all these things. So we're still afraid to go to regular open classes. But we hope that all of these will start changing. Is that changing on like a teaching level too? Yes, it is changing on a teaching level because it's, it's teaching for different bodies. It's how are you inclusive with the language you use. It's how are you inclusive with people that they might not have a limb. We don't say arms or legs, we say limbs, upper limbs, lower limbs. My limb might be different than yours. So yeah, it is a lot about the teaching and we do a lot of work on teacher training and that opens a lot of possibilities because you never know who is gonna come through that door and who wants to take your class and why should they not take your class they should not be afraid to take any classes I saw in a previous interview someone ask you about the differences between dancing here in the states and dancing in Europe do you feel that especially a company like yours could benefit much more if there were more robust state or federally funded arts programs to encourage the arts to be more prevalent in communities in general absolutely I think the thing in Europe is the dance and theater is all part of the culture from when you go to school and you're a kid you know all the kids have access to that you know when I was dancing in the UK every time I travel with any company the government we pay for an assistant to come with me so they will pay for their salary they will pay for their travel expenses they will pay for everything that's not like that here which means that the companies have to take that cost on you know if you have a budget of let's say 10,000 and about 2,000 of that has to be saved for that access need and that should not be there the government and the foundation should take care of that so we can focus on the art and we can do what we do best instead of making things accessible for us. So yes, it's a huge difference, huge difference. We need to make sure people know that dance is not exclusive for able bodies. It's for all of us. And we don't do therapy. That's another thing that needs to be clear. We do arts and we try to be as the highest production level that we can. So. 
Do you find people mistaking your company for therapy as opposed to being an actual like professional dance company with professional dancers? I think it's changing now. I think people are like, oh, okay. When they see us perform, you're like, okay, that's that's good level, right? <laughs> but I, I think a lot of people still think, oh, that's so cute. What a hobby. No, it's not. These dancers are in the studio for six hours every day and sometimes more. And we travel to places like here, like Jacob's Pillow. Like we're going to Mexico in October. We're going to Germany in September. So I think some people still think I'm so inspired, but I want to inspire people by the art we do, not by the ability or disability that we might have. It's a bit ridiculous to me, but I understand that people are learning and not everybody has seen a performance with dancers like us. So it's, yeah. We're in a world with a lot of individuals and a lot of humans with different experiences. And I think we need to also be, it's surprising. And at the same time, we need to be understanding that not everybody has seen the world or has experienced the world the way we have. So it's, it's a teaching moment. Sometimes we're tired of teaching though. And we just like, okay, and turn around and say, okay, <laughs> each to their own. <laughs> So what's exciting for you about the works that you're going to be presenting here in the Berkshires, Nadia of Access Dance Company? I'm very excited because I think we have a program that is very diverse, not only within the dancers, but the program itself, the choreographies. Um, they come from very different places. The dancers are showcased in very different challenging ways. We have the traditional more lines and like with Flutter by Robin Deckers, more balletic, more like physical. Then we have a second piece, Historia Rodas, which I choreographed. It has a lot of theater in it. And then we have the Siderata by Asun Noales, a choreographer from Spain too, that is, it's very intimate and is very physical too. So I think we have a program that is very diverse and I hope everybody that comes and experiences it takes something with them. I keep referencing the series of videos that you did during COVID. Mm. They really are kind of remarkable to do like instruction like salsa instruction and basic upper body movement instruction in really short digestible snippets was really fascinating and really cool like how did that come about that was before i came as artistic director so i gotta give you a definite uh, answer to who was the one that got the light bulb out there but mark brew was the artistic director at the time and i know that all the companies around had to pivot somehow we realized at that time that Actually, we should have probably done that before because a lot of the disabled community cannot leave their houses because of their disabilities. They might be in a bed or they might not be able to come to our classes. Reaching to all of those people has been an incredible way of connecting with a different group of the disability community. And from there, we're continuing to do that. So we just started a whole new part or sessions of of teaching different types of dance online so people can access it from anywhere in the world and it's at no cost to them. So they can continue to develop that movement if they want to or not and they can continue engaging with movement and with us. It was part of the pandemic but we have realized we can continue taking that forward. That's so cool. I know. <laughs> Like, and now there's there's landscaping going on. We're out in the Berkshires at Jacob's Pillow with Nani of, of Axis Dance Company. And, well, I mean, it, it's outdoor in the Berkshires. And you have to make it pretty so the landscaping is happening. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about dancing with your baby. 
<laughs> because, like, A, not only are you one of the first people who I've seen go, pregnancy was terrible, I don't know why people do this. Child or no, I appreciate you for that. But one of the things you mentioned about your children in early stages is that, like, you were getting commissions and working on choreography with them there, which is, again, so cool. Another thing that people forget about, especially performing careers, is that for women in any career, children come about and then you have to make concessions because everyone forgets that you have another life. That adaptation of just having them there and just being able to dance around them seems really cool. Could you talk about dancing with your baby? Yes, yes. Pregnancy is horrible. At least it was for me. Everybody talked about this dreamy state. I'm like, no, hell no. Nine months of being sick, it was not good. But I did it twice, so I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that old there. I, when I was pregnant with my first baby, when I was seven months pregnant, I did a piece, a video piece with her inside and my cousin is a violinist and she was playing the violin and that night I almost went into labor because I shouldn't have done that but I did it. (laughs) And then that same year when when they were born I was I was choreographing a steampunk opera with my partner was directing and a friend of ours Paul Shapiro was composing. So Mark Sweats my partner he and I decided hey let's do this thing I'm like okay so I choreograph a lot with a baby in my arms and one arm the cane one arm the baby so there you go it was and and then with the second one I did the same thing I was teaching and I was choreographing when I was pregnant with her I also didn't get some jobs because I'm a mother because people didn't think I could do it that's also very sad that people judge you for being human and having a life and not being able to give them 24 hours every day day and night so that was also sad I'm a big supporter of families whether it's a father or mother or anybody just a parent I think we need to support each other I think I'm a lot more creative because of that I solve problems fairly quick because of that (laughs) Um, my kids you know my younger one loves to come to the studio and talk to the dancers and she's a big fan my older one is like well yeah I'll go if you give me the iPad so you know it's great it was great having them there when they were young and now they're their own people and they just need to figure out what they like and what they don't but I'm a big supporter of parents continue being artists because I think we have a lot to offer and our career should not end once we become a parent so you, you have this program called Coriolab. What is Coriolab? Coriolab is a program that is two weeks for disabled choreographers, where they come to our studios or work with us for two weeks. They have access to a studio. They have access to our dancers. They have access to our admin team. We do a lot of professional development with them. So we bring people like our grand writer comes and talks to them about grand writing and how to approach that. We have our production manager that comes and gives them a workshop and time to talk about what is a production, what do you need to think about. We have a presenter, we have somebody who does disability justice and talks about that and and we pay them. We pay the fellows and we pay for them to get there and and we give them a stipend and then they have one whole year to continue that relationship with us and ask us questions and how can we direct them and all that kind of stuff. So it's a pretty rounded program and it's only for disabled choreographers because generally we don't have the space in other fellowships to really dig into our artistry, really figure out what it is. It's always about production, production, production. And so we give them that space to 
just try things that might work and might not work. And that's okay, without judgment and with all the support that we can. What are some considerations that, especially dance spaces in teaching and in creating professional or paraprofessional spaces, should take into consideration in order to have more generally accessible classes and spaces? I think the main thing is to have the teachers that are trained to welcome us there. So for me, for instance, I went to a university where I was not able to take the dance degree because I couldn't take ballet class. What is ballet class? You know, what is the narrow thinking of a ballet class? Is the traditional of using your feet? I can't use my feet, but I can use my arms pretty well, and my hands could be representing my feet. So having the teachers really understanding that there is no only one way of moving, that there are many ways, and we're all individuals, and take that individual and figure out how to develop them and help them grow as a, as a dancer and as a mover. I think that's the most important thing. And universities, they're way far behind. There are many that you cannot, as a disabled artist, you cannot go and get a dance degree. Because they don't know what to do with you. That's the thing. And they tell us, they tell us that. We go to universities and they say, we just don't know what to do with them. And you're like, well, let me tell I you mean, what, what, what you to do, do with them. us. <laughs> like, what you do with them is you teach you them to dance. <laughs> like. Yes, you include them in your classes. You don't exclude, you include. Right. So it's... Yeah, I think that is a huge gap that is happening right now at the university level and the training programs that I see around. I think being being one thing only is boring. <laughs> <laughs> I love experiencing different things, yeah. Different flavors. Yeah. That's what makes life fun. Yes. <laughs> if not, it's boring, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me. This was wonderful. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for coming here in the beautiful campus of Jacob's Pillow with all this history around. I do have to say their performance this weekend was amazing. And a quick reminder that Jacob's Pillow is an underwriter of NEPM. Since the Commonwealth of Massachusetts became a commonwealth, the people living west of Worcester have gotten the short shrift when it comes to representation from Beacon Hill. Up next, we'll talk to the newly appointed head of the newly created office in the Healy Driscoll administration, Ann Gobi, the new director of rural affairs in the Executive Office of Economic Development. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. In March, Massachusetts Governor Mara Healy and Lieutenant Governor Kim Driscoll visited Franklin County to announce the creation of a rural affairs director to ensure that Massachusetts's rural communities were better represented in state government. Wow. And in May, <laughs> the Healy-Driscoll administration announced that Massachusetts Senator Ann Gobi would join their administration as the new Director of Rural Affairs in the Executive Office of Economic Development. She started in the role last month. Gobi was first elected to the legislature in 
2001 as state representative and became state senator in 2014, representing 22 communities in Worcester and Hampshire counties, several of which are rural. Before she left the Senate, she served as the Senate chair of the Agriculture Committee, vice chair of the Higher Education Committee, and co-chair of the Commission on the 21st Century Farming. She also co-chaired the Rural Caucus, Food Systems Caucus, Regional Transit Authority Caucus, Municipal Light Caucus, and Regional Schools Caucus, and served on the East-West Rail Commission. She joins us now. Thank you for joining us, Ann Gobi. Thank you very much. It's great to be on with you in the in the great 413. I appreciate it. We call it the fabulous 413, Ann Gobi. You don't rebrand well, us. We'll she can rebrand us. Fabulous, great. <laughs> so many words to describe. Uh, did they give you this job just to sort of collate all of the caucuses you were already a part of? Because it seems like they rolled all of the things you work on committee for into one job. You know, it does. Now that you put it that way, it does sound a lot like that. <laughs> um, you know, I I am so excited to be in this position. And, you know, one of the things that is so great about it is that I still get to work with the communities that I had been working with for a number of years. And um, while I miss my legislative friends, I still get to work with them. You know, Joe Comerford and Natalie Blay and Mindy Dom and um, Paul Mark and, and, and folks that had been in the legislature in the past. Of course, uh, Stan Rosenberg, President Stan Rosenberg, who um, did so much for Western Mass. And, and I still enjoy having opportunities to connect with him once in a while as well. Well, you just started in this job last month, and over the course of the past six months, uh, one of the major economic drivers of rural communities in Massachusetts, agriculture, has been taking massive hits. We had the floods uh-huh. of last week. We had the frost of May 18th. We had the, the peaches decimated in February. We had a tornado uh, over, over the, the weekend. weekend that luckily didn't do uh, any damage or too much damage, but have you had an opportunity to, as in your new role, come out here and survey some of this damage? I have, yeah, I, I was out, I've been out twice, including yesterday with, with the governor, lieutenant governor, with uh, Commissioner Randall, uh, with Christina Lechko. So, yeah, uh, Christina Lechko, as well as with um, Rep. Blay and Senator Comerford. Um, it, it's awful. It's awful. You know, we and I know the two folks have been reporting on things. And one of the things that I'm really pleased that the governor and lieutenant governor not just being out there. You know, it's one thing to to look at damage and say you're going to do something. It's another to actually do it. And I'm very happy to say that I know that they're working very hard with all the organizations. And I and I'm hoping that within a few days you'll see something um, ready on the ground to get some funding to the farmers who need it the most. And, you know, one of the things when we met yesterday with the farmers, too, and it, and, and I've heard this through my years um, being involved in agriculture. Uh, I was in 4-H when I was uh, a, a, younger, a much younger person when I growing up in Spencer. And so agriculture and the farming community has been very important to me for everything that that they do for so many people. And for, for farmers, they, they work on such small margins as it is. I mean, there's not too many people that will go into a business and say, hey, I'm going to spend a dollar to make 97 cents, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of our farmers, that's what they're faced with. And when to get hit with, with natural disasters, like what happened uh, with, with the flooding, you know, we can't give we can't say to them, well, you know, we can give you another loan. That's not helpful. 
even a no interest, a low interest loan isn't what they need. They need outright grant money. They need monies coming into them uh, to try to recoup a little bit of their losses if possible. And, you know, in the... And looking, um, no pun intended, but looking downstream, too, because we want them to be here, not just the rest of this growing season. We want to make sure that they're going to be able to be here next year and the year after that and, and so on. Do you know Ann Gobi, who's the new director of rural affairs for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, if the damage has met, risen to the level that we will be receiving FEMA funds in this area? Has that a level of assessment been done as of yet? So the um, Commissioner Randall um, is in the process of, of doing that. I'm guessing we're going to be pretty darn close, and I would imagine that that we would hit that number just because, um, again, you know, speaking with some of the fa- farmers yesterday, you know, we, we spoke to one person that had uh, about $300,000 worth of loss himself. Uh, we know that there are at least 75 farms that are affected. Um, and then if you um, think about some of the damage that was done within the municipalities, the roads that were washed out, the damage in in uh, municipal buildings. So I would think we are going to hit that. Um, but the other part of it is as a state, as a commonwealth, you know, we look out for each other and uh, we can't wait. I don't think we can wait for the feds to act. I think we need to do this on our own. I feel like after the floods and and the frosts that those two surprises are maybe things that you weren't necessarily expecting in your first few months. But what are some other things that have that have been unexpected as you've taken office and Gobi? Well, I would like to tell you that there's been a lot that that wasn't expected. But from the years that I was in the legislature, um, a lot of the problems as well as the opportunities uh, are things that I've been aware of, and I think that you would find that if you talk to any other municipal and state official. I, I think that all of us can say um, what some of the challenges are, because the challenges that we have in rural areas really are not necessarily different from what the rest of the state is facing as far as not having enough folks to work, not having uh, affordable housing, not having affordable child care. It's just that when it comes to rural areas, it's more difficult sometimes for us to be to be able to react to those problems in the same way, just because we don't have some of the um, the infrastructure and some of the things that are in place that maybe the larger cities do. We're speaking with Ann Gobi, who is the newly appointed director of rural affairs in a new office that the Healy Driscoll administration created a director of rural affairs in the executive office of economic development. It is a, it is a branch. It is an office within another office. It's not a cabinet level position. So how are these rural issues going to rise to the top? And why isn't it, in your opinion, or should it be a cabinet level position? Well, I, I think this is a great first step, Monty, you know, to uh, when, when the governor was going around the state and mentioning that, you know, she was going to be a governor for all 351 cities and towns. Well, uh, our rural areas make up 181 of those communities. So that's a lot of folks. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of area. That's a lot of communities. And one thing, as you mentioned, um, you're right. I'm within economic development. It's not a a cabinet position. I can tell you that within the first uh, little over a month that I've been in this role that I have received um, incredible support from Secretary Howe, from the governor, from the lieutenant governor, from the folks that are within the economic development office. Uh, People could not be nicer, more supportive of 
and listening. You know, I think that that's really important. As you are probably aware, uh, the economic team has been around and has uh, had nine listening sessions around the Commonwealth in order to make an economic development plan. And so I feel that I've come in at a good time because I can make sure that that the rural voice is a big part of that economic plan, something that really has been missing over the past several years. Why don't we take a quick break? We're going to come back with Ann Gobi, who's the new director of rural affairs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. We're going to talk about rural schools and rural transportation. And apples. And apples. <laughs> You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We're speaking with Ann Gobi, the Director of Rural Affairs in the Executive Office of Economic Development, just started in that new position last month. I was looking to see, because I know that the commitment the Healy Driscoll administration made was that there would be an office and there would be office hours and be available. I, where is your office and when are your office hours? I was having a hard time <laughs> This is like trying to find your professor to get like something signed exactly. so that you can graduate. It's like their, their office hours are from one to two. Has that already begun, Ann Gobi? So I'm, and that's on me. I'm actually in the process of trying to figure out a good schedule at this point. I've kind of turned to my former colleagues and have asked them where they want me to be and where they'd like to be with me. So to give you an example, on July 18th, I I spent, oh, July 18th, um, June 18th, I believe. There we go. June 27th. There we go. We have to go back to June. Um, I spent the day with um, Senator Paul Mark. And uh, so we, we went around some communities uh, in the southern and northern Berkshire area and so my plan right now is to um, be as flexible as I can. When people want me to come out, I will come out. And uh, if the office hours seem to be the best way to do things, I can do that. So as far as an office, pretty much my car. <laughs> I live in the town of Spencer. And so I'm, I'm spending a lot of time on the road. And, of course, uh, this last week going back and forth um, a few times to Deerfield, which was fine, and, and being able to meet with the farmers there. So I... I expect that I'll be on the road quite a bit. But there will be no office in Western Mass. I mean, I think that a lot of people from at first when you were announced uh, being from Spencer, they were like, is she rural enough? And (laughs) is Spencer rural enough? I mean, given your your bona fides with your track record in the Senate, you've been on all these committees. Oh, there you go. (laughs) <laughs> no more beer there, though, right? No. I know. Anyway, that's off, that's off topic. But, uh, you know, is it would it be more beneficial for rural communities to be more ensconced somewhere in Western Mass proper? Berkshires doesn't believe that Hampshire is Western Mass enough. So right. there may be no perfect location, but. Yeah, well, and, and I think that, it, to be honest with you, you know, that, that was one of the problems that, I, that even when I first started um, at, in, in the, as a state rep and both state senator, I had an office in Spencer, and people weren't going to travel there. And so what I have found about some regional offices, and I can use, the governor has a regional office in Western Mass and in Springfield. So I can use that office, but, you know, that's not really Western Mass. And well, it's Western Mass, but it's, it's not very rural. It's not Western Mass enough, though, for a lot of people either. Right. Um, so that's why I, I prefer to be in my vehicle. And so my, my plan is that um, as I go out to communities, Yesterday, when I was speaking with with the people in Deerfield, you know, they said, "Hey, you can come out here, and you know, you can have a meeting uh, um, at one of our offices." So I, 
I think that's the track I'm going to take and because I'd rather go to the people rather than the people having to come to me, if that makes sense. Right. That makes sense. Um, so originally being from Boston, I'm curious about your work with the East-West Rail and on the Regional yeah. Transit con- Caucus, because I would really like to stop driving to Boston and instead take the train. So, And I'd wait- like to take a bus from sometime in Franklin County on the weekend, where there is currently no regional transit. None at yeah. all. There's, yeah. there's barely week yeah. in the week service for Franklin transit. So so where are those projects currently at and how does that affect rural areas that are under your purview? So on the on East West Rail, uh, the commission has finished up the, the hearings and in the process of having a, a report come out on that. Um, it, as you know, the Hilly Driscoll administration has made a commitment to at least some of the funding to go towards that. I believe there was $12 million that they spoke about. We have a very strong uh, congressional delegation with uh, Congressman um, uh, Richie Neal and Jim McGovern, who've been all over this issue, and and I would say as well with our two U.S. senators, um, with Markey and Warren as well, but definitely with Congressman Neal and Congressman McGovern, it, it, it will happen. I, I'm I'm confident it's going to happen. Uh, I don't have the date when that will be, but it ha- it has to. You know, you go back and um, not not to say that you've been along around a long time, Monty, but I'm sure you've heard. You know, folks back in the 1960s, there were five or six trains that ran passenger trains that ran every day from Springfield to Boston. And you know, it, it's crazy that that we don't have a better transportation system for our area and, you know, these connecting roads to be able to go from Pittsfield to Springfield, uh, to go in Worcester to Boston with stops, um, with a stop in Palmer. Um, you know, that that's what we need. We absolutely need it. And then microtransit we need to look at. When I was on in part of the transportation caucus, you know, it's, it's always the, the 14 regional transit authorities like we're getting the scraps when the MBTA gets gets the bulk of the dough. Well, on, on that, when it comes to transportation, the you know yeah. we the fair share amendment was just passed last year. It's supposed right. to go to okay. schools. It's supposed to go to transportation That's roads, bridges. Right. What is your office and Gobi, a, a director of R- rural affairs in the economic development office, going mm-hmm. to do to make sure that Western Mass gets its fair share of the fair share amendment dollars? Yeah, well, part of it, as you know. Um, Legislatively, is um, um, as the money is allocated, I think that that's one of the big areas that we work with our legislators as well to make sure that everybody is weighing in, and that as those monies are coming out, and I'll do the same, that that it's done in a fair way. Um, and and as you know, you know the the uh, the devil is in the details, so to speak. So even if we say half of that money is going to transportation, well, what percentage of that half is going to find its way to the RTAs? What percentage of that will find its way to maybe looking at some microtransit that we so desperately need in some of these small areas where you, where you don't have uh, the larger buses going in, but people still need those transportation services, and especially as you look at an aging population that we have, um, specifically in Western Mass., People want to be able to stay in their communities, or if they don't have transportation to get to a doctor's appointment, to get to a pharmacy, to get somewhere to be able to do their transportation, they're not going to stay, and that's a real problem. 
We're speaking with Ann Gobi, who is the newly appointed Director of Rural Affairs in the Executive Office of Economic Development. We have to ask you, which are tastier, Western Mass Apples or Central Mass Apples? <laughs> so, I understand that this question is unfair. <laughs> it is, I, I have been up to Apex Orchards. Um, they, they do a fantastic job there. I will tell you that uh, because it's an area um, that's in Central Mass, uh, is Brookfield Orchards. Uh, family-run for generations. It's a young woman, a granddaughter of one of the original owners that now runs it. I, it's always nice to see um, these generational farms and businesses that are able to stay in business. And she's done an excellent job. So if you ever have a chance to travel out to uh, it, to North Brookfield, I, I would say you know Brookfield Orchards is one. Um, Red Apple Farm in Phillipston, but out um, out closer to where you are, um, Apex Farms, Clarkdale Farms, um, Dickinson Farm, and we can go on and on. We're very fortunate that we have an, have these orchards, but with everything that they've been through, as you mentioned, with the frost, um, we, you know, we, we have to support them. We have to do what we can to support those farmers. And uh, I'm very pleased to say that, that the Healy Driscoll administration understands that, and uh, working with our legislative delegation has been great. Like I said, you've got a really strong legislative delegation in this area. I think you're going to see some good things happening very soon. Well, Ann Gobi, you're brand new in this position. You're former state senator. Uh, you're now the director of rural affairs in the executive office of economic development. We cover so much rural ground here with this show in four counties of Western Mass. We hope to have you on frequently. So thank you for joining us today. Yay. Thanks a lot. You have, and have a great rest of the day and um, don't, don't do any, um, don't don't ask for any more rain. Yeah. That's the last thing we need. Thank you so much. That microburst hopefully is done now. Yeah. (laughs) Tomorrow on the Fabulous 413, we'll take you into the hidden territories of the Bacchae. The summer spectacle at Double Edge Theater in Ashfield. And the word nerd answering a horrifyingly craven question. The question is not horrifyingly craven. It's about those words, horrify and craven. A listener question from Claire in Northampton. If you've got a question for the word nerd, email us, thefab413 at nepm.org or text 1-800-639-9120. Our engineer is Betsy Food Truck Breath Lengtho. Our technical team is Bart. What snacks at yonder food truck breaks Rankin? Kara, not appearing at this food truck, Foster, Punk Rude Boy Dubay, and Vanessa Pabone of Media Lab for bringing the food truck for her students and for letting us mooch off of it. Our director was Tony Harka, food truck done, by the way. Thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Suitcase Junket, Ani DeFranco, Balloon, Emma Jean Thackeray, the Blonesome Brothers, Bunnies, Aaron McKeown, and see you tomorrow.